This podcast is brought to you by Minimal Productions. Producer Jim Mins. This is Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag with your host, Misha Zielinski. G'day, Diplomates fans. Welcome to 2023. Welcome back to the show. Thanks so much for joining us once again. We've got a big year planned now. This week, I caught up with Mick Ryan. Mick Ryan is a retired Major General in the Australian Army and an expert on modern warfare. He was the head of Australia's Defence College and was made a member of the Order of Australia for his leadership of Australia's first reconstruction task force to Afghanistan. Now, Mick's a prolific writer and commentator, particularly on the Ukraine war and Russia's invasion. And Mick's analysis is featured in the Sydney Morning Herald, Foreign Policy Magazine and The Economist. His book, War Transformed, is compulsory reading for those seeking to understand the future of great power rivalry. It's a fantastic book. You should check it out. Now, I caught up with Mick to talk about all things related to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, including how Ukraine's military is reshaping how we think about modern warfare, Putin's change of military leadership and what that means for Russia's plans going forward, the role of information in warfare, particularly the use of smartphone technology, why leadership is so crucial to military success, what's going to happen in 2023 and why Ukraine is a key battlefront for the future of democracy. It's a really big chat. Unfortunately, Mick was only able to give us about half an hour of his time, so it's not as long as we would ordinarily have these conversations, but he packs plenty in because Mick's such a well-versed speaker in these things and his answers are nice and tight compared to my long rants. But it's a fantastic episode. I hope you enjoy it. You can follow Mick online. You can check that out in the show notes. Uh, follow him on Twitter. Mick always posts really great long threads explaining what's happening in the war and I always learn a lot from him, so make sure you check that out. Uh, otherwise, please continue to support the show. If, you can, if you're new to the show, please rate and review us. It really does help a lot. I'll stop babbling and enjoy the episode. Mick Ryan, welcome to Diplomates, mate. Thanks for coming. That's good to be with you. Uh, now, look, uh, unfortunately, you only have a limited time for us today. So I thought a place to start just quickly is you might give us an assessment. You know, we're at day 323 of the war. Russia has just replaced its military leadership. Can you explain that and the significance of that to the audience? Well, I think the reality is no one can fully explain it. Uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. Russian politics is murky at the best of times. Yeah, it's I a black there box. There's a great Churchillian quote on that. Uh, but I think this is much more about the uh, pirus, uh, sorry, palace politics uh, in Moscow than it is about the battlefield leadership and performance of Surovikin. Uh, it is clear that over the last few months that Prigozhin has launched a very uh, aggressive information operation against the Russian military defence. I mean, it's almost like he seeks to supplant the role of the Ministry of Defence, which is a pretty crazy notion when you have a look at all the things that it does. But my sense is Grasimov and Shoigu have become so concerned about this that they've reasserted the role of the Ministry of Defence. They have um, cut the link from Surovikin to Putin because Surovikin was clearly uh, uh, on good relations with Prigozhin. Um, so this really is about reasserting the dominance of the Russian Ministry of Defence and politics in Moscow more than any event on the battlefield in Ukraine over the last three months that Surovikin have been in charge. Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the big things here is that Putin keeps changing things because 
the war's not going to his liking. Um, and, you know, the truth um, is not really a palatable truth for Putin. Now, I just want to quickly go back, I suppose, to overall Russia's performance or underperformance in this war. Did that surprise you, you know, with your military background you know, and, and knowing what you knew about the Russian army? You know, were you surprised and are you continued to be surprised by Russia's performance on the battlefield? Um, I think everyone was a little bit surprised just how bad they were. I mean, no one um, fully appreciated the depth of professional corruption that's set in the Russian military over the last decade or so. I mean, this is not the Soviet era military. It's a very different institution. Um, I think, too, many analysts just didn't actually know the capability of the Ukrainian armed forces, other than those who might have been involved in NATO training missions with them. And many assumed uh, the Ukrainian military of 2014 was the one that existed in 2022. That appears to be the uh, assumption the Russians have made to their peril, and I think many others uh, did so. Uh, that said, the Ukrainian army and military that existed in February 2022 also doesn't exist now. Uh, the one that exists in January 2023 is a vastly better, a vastly more capable institution, not just uh, tactically, but at every level, you know, at the operational level, uh, in military strategy, in long-term planning. Uh, as good as they were in February 2022, they're much, much better now. Because I imagine, you know, it's a learning process, an iterative process, and given that Ukraine, two advantages, obviously, it's the Western supply of armaments, but it's also the smallness in many ways and their outsized nature against the might of the size of the Russian army. Innovation, I think, has been a big factor. And one of the things I want to talk to you about, you talk a lot about in terms of Ukraine's military performance, you talk about their strategy of corrosion. Now, what do you mean by that, and, and how has that been effective in Ukraine's uh, you know, quite impressive resistance of, of Putin's armies up until now? Yeah, this, I mean, the strategy of corrosion really is all about taking an indirect approach to making your enemy suffer. And indeed, there are deep historical precedents to this approach. They didn't invent it, but they've been very clever mm. at implementing it. I mean, Clausewitz, when he talks about making the war costly for an adversary, says that a military should give priority to operations that increase the enemy's suffering. And then the most important method is to wear down the enemy. This is exactly what Ukraine are doing. Yes, they will fight them on the battlefield in close combat where they have to, but they won't do that until they're at an advantage in doing so. So they undertake these long-range strikes against ammunition, command and control, uh, troop concentrations... They undertake a global uh, information campaign to solicit support for them and degrade support for Russia. So there's a whole lot of different components of this strategy of corrosion. But, you know, I think it is led by profound purpose. Uh, Zelensky and his government have been very good at explaining why uh, Ukrainians must fight Russia, why foreigners should support Ukraine. So I think that's an important part of the strategy. Um, and I, I, I think that, you know, the way they've been able to mobilise their people and foreign support to fight what is a just war, uh, the clearest example of good versus evil that we've seen for many decades in warfare, Absolutely. are all part of this strategy of corrosion. 
I would propose that the final part of it is that they have outlearnt and out-adapted the Russians. You know, the Ukrainians have proven themselves to be extraordinarily innovative in, in uh, civil defence, in, in their national resilience efforts, in their online cyber defence and global influence campaigns, as well as how they fight tactically and prepare themselves for battle. That's not to say the Russians haven't learned and adapted, just the Ukrainians have been better and quicker and done it across more parts of the military endeavour than the Russians have been able to do. And so one thing I want to ask you as, as someone who's been a senior military leader, what is the role of leadership? You know, you've touched on Zelensky's, I suppose, global leadership and the way he's been able to rally Ukrainians. But in terms of whether or not you're a general on the battlefield, and this centralised structure that the Russians have where essentially almost all decisions come via Putin and, you know, the dangers of a national leader trying to run a military strategy on the ground. And what's the impact of that and the on-battlefield decision-making capacity of, I suppose, generals and officers making calls as they're going? And how has that impacted uh, on, the, on the war to date? No, I think it's had a significant impact. There's clearly an asymmetry in leadership between Ukraine and Russia. I mean, uh, if you talk to experts on Ukraine and Russia, many will tell you that Ukraine is a more bottom-up kind of society, whereas Russia is a more top-down kind of society. Uh, and when you have those societal um, uh, cultures, it flows into the military. Uh, so the centralised approach by the Russian military means that they are slower to learn, to spread lessons, but also slower in... Uh, the process of identifying targets through to prosecuting against those targets. I think it is, this has been a critical part in Ukraine's success, that uh, they have allowed their people to innovate and that they have generally been far superior to the Russians in spreading knowledge of innovations and what works on a modern battlefield. Remember, this is a new kind of war. There are many continuities from previous wars, but there are several new elements uh, that force learning. And we should also recall that whilst there's been lots of wars in the past, they haven't been fought by the people who are there at the moment. They might mm -hmm. have previous experience, but every war is a new experience for its participants. So the faster you can learn and evolve, uh, the more likely you are to be successful. And so one of the big elements of the war, so we'll talk about, I suppose, military kit on the ground, but one of the big factors has been, you know, the so-called the first smartphone war. And so how have you seen the role of information um, in modern warfare as we're seeing it unveil itself on the Ukraine battlefield? Uh, and, and that information war, it's always been a factor, but the real-time nature of things you're seeing happening on the battlefield is quite extraordinary. And the amount of open-source intelligence that you're seeing as well is extraordinary. So how are you seeing that? Um, how much has that changed the, the scope of warfare as you're seeing it right now? Well, I mean, you know, influence and violence have always been two sides of the coin in, in warfare, and information has always been an important part of both. What we're seeing different at the moment is the generation and application of many forms of open source intelligence or, or information beyond what might traditionally be used by military institutions. Um, so we're seeing the Bellingcats, we're seeing citizen journalists, we're seeing individual analysts 
who are mapping the war, who are providing assessments, who are sharing videos, who are providing information to um, inform both targeting and battle damage um, assessments. I think that is a fundamental shift in this war. There's been a Cambrian explosion, if I can use that term, in in open source in this war. Uh, And at the same time, you've seen uh, military and government intelligence agencies sharing intelligence with other governments and publicly in a way Mm. that we haven't seen before as well. That is newish. Uh, particularly in the lead up to the war, but we've yeah, seen that's it. right. The way that the, the the way that the information space was shaped ahead of Russia's invasion was quite critical, I think. Yeah, so I think this is something that uh, is uh, transformational. Uh, there are not very many elements of this war that are, but I think I think that is. I mean, it's one of the lessons that are actually new in this war, as opposed to the vast majority of which are just old lessons relearned, including the need for good leadership. That is not a new lesson. And so, you know, when you're looking now, as you look at assessing the battlefield right now, uh, it's winter time. Now, you've previously written that wars don't stop in winter. We're seeing a lot of fighting uh, in the eastern part of the country, particularly around uh, Bakhmut, uh, which has turned into, you know, for lack of a better term, an absolute killing field and, and, and some of the most brutal trench warfare you know you talk a lot about modern warfare but it is very much old school uh fighting um and and the the rates of attrition and casualties on both sides extraordinarily high how do you see the fighting as it currently stands and and which side based on your assessment do you think is in the ascendancy um you know I, i think the momentum is certainly with ukraine at the moment uh, Russia has done a lot of things that have compromised its chances. It has been poorly integrated. It's generally been badly led. It's had, you know, uh, lots of different leaders that have forced um, pauses or changes in direction. And frankly, uh, deploying in 150,000 mobilised soldiers uh, in some respects is going to be a burden, not an assistance to them. It will have a difference, of course. Uh, but 150,000 mobilised soldiers is not the same as an army of 150,000. They're very different things. And these are generally poorly trained and equipped young private soldiers that have had almost no collective training. Um, so, you know, uh, Ukraine has uh, built a large, effective military institution. No, not perfect by any means, and even though I'll admit that, that they make mistakes. But this is a large, more effective military institution that Ukraine has built. Uh, it has the initiative. Uh, Russia might, you know, decide where it wants to do the next offensive, but the Ukrainians probably have far more agency than the Russians do in this war at this point in time. So I want to talk about, you, you touched on this, about the way Ukraine in many ways has used its soft power to make itself... You know, the battlefield, you know, President Biden's talked about the struggle between democracies and autocracies and, and Ukraine has very successfully made itself the front line of that struggle and said that they're very much... And Zelensky is unapologetic whenever he appears and says this is the battle for democracy in real time on our land. Uh, I suppose, firstly, do you share that assessment? And if that is the case, how important is what's happening in Ukraine right now? No, I think it's not just a clever... Um, 
method of soliciting overseas support from Zelensky, he's, he's right in many respects. I mean, how valuable is democracy and how much are we willing to fight for it? Um, you know, if one democratic country of 44 million in Europe isn't worth fighting for, why is Germany or France or Poland? I mean, because the reality is they are all worth fighting for. And it's the same in our region. If one island nation of 24 million people isn't worth defending, um, why are any of them? Um, democracy comes in many forms, um, but if one of them matters, they all matter. And I think this is not just about defending Ukraine, as important as it is. It's also about the legitimacy of democratic systems, the illegitimacy of authoritarian regimes, and why they're worth resisting in the 21st century. So picking up on your comments then that this is a, a bigger than an Eastern European territorial war, and I share your view that this is the, you know, a critical front line. You know, as you say, Australia, we're heavily staked in a rules-based order, but also a world where might is not right, and that uh, you know, the expectation that if small countries can be, uh, for lack of a better term, knocked off or invaded by larger uh, neighbours, that bodes very poorly uh, for a country like Australia. So... Looking ahead then to 2023, we're approaching the one-year mark quite unbelievably. Yeah, I was there when the war started. It's extraordinary to think that we're going to be a year into it, given what was projected. But And a lot of people ask me this, and you know, I'm not going to uh, expect you to give an answer that's going to be uh, held to, but you know, how do you see the war end? Because one of the things that I think are problematic here is can it end? Given that Ukraine is very clear that they are not prepared to surrender... Given that, uh, from where we sit in Western democracies and generally people that you know want to see sovereignty maintained that um, can't really give in uh, to Putin's war of aggression here, and given that it's very difficult for Putin to meet his own objectives, i.e., keeping Ukraine from, I suppose, it, keeping Ukraine in the Russians' orbit, notwithstanding the disaster that it's come as a result of his invasion. Um, how can trying to put all those elements together, particularly the way the Ukrainians see things, how does it resolve itself? Can it resolve itself? And what's likely to happen this year, do you think? Well, I think, uh, as I've written on multiple occasions from the start, well, this will be a long war. Um, they are irreconcilable at the moment. Ukraine and Russia's strategic objectives are so different that they cannot be reconciled. Now, that doesn't mean there shouldn't be talks and diplomacy and all that stuff. That is an important part of war. Uh, but I just don't see any reconciliation of those strategic objectives, at least in 2023. So, you know, as through history, wars only end two ways. Uh, defeat of one side by another, that's quite obvious, or some kind of um, exhaustion leading to negotiation. Uh, if we have a look at the... Uh, at modern warfare, generally it's been the former, not the latter. Um, if you have a look at the US Civil War, Franco-Prussian War, uh, World War I, uh, World War II, um, you know, these large modern con conventional wars generally end in one side being defeated quite convincingly. Um, that is certainly possible at some point in the future. It is not going to happen in the short or medium term. Um, so whilst I think that is a strong possibility in the, this war, 
it is not a possibility uh, that we're going to see in the coming months. And so basically, you know, if it requires exhaustion, I agree with you. I don't see how there's any strategic alignment between them and maybe something happens to change that, but it's hard to understand given they're both essentially maintaining a zero-sum position of, uh, you know, Ukraine either needs to essentially submit itself to Russian control or Russian influence or Russia must leave Ukrainian territory essentially the positions of both sides. I'm obviously sympathetic to the Ukrainian side, but knowing that, um, what should countries like Australia be doing to assist uh, or, or shape that outcome, in your opinion? Well, there's a bunch of things countries like Australia can do. Um, the first thing they can and should do is recognise they have an interest in this war. And I think the government has done that with uh, mm-hmm. some statements and uh, it's aligned itself with Ukraine and made uh, pretty strong statements about uh, Russia's actions in this war so far. Uh, but, you know, I think uh, with words needs to come action. Um, you can't just uh, say things without, you know, following through with support. You know, and I think Australia generally has been reasonably parsimonious in its support. Yes, it's given some old Bushmasters and APCs and some coal, but the reality is for a country our size uh, and a country who will need foreign support at some point in the near to medium term, I think we've been parsimonious and slow in the provision of that support. Uh, And we've been very unimaginative, uh, which seems to be a characteristic of foreign affairs and defence at the moment. Uh, There's little creativity in this support. But we were slow to support a small training team that's going to deploy to Britain. Uh, We haven't imagined that we might be able to throw some money into another uh, air defence system or purchase of artillery like other European countries are doing. Uh, we haven't imagined we might fill up a couple of Navy ships full of equipment and sail them to Europe rather than waiting on a fortnightly C-17 flight. I mean, I, I, I think the Australian government has uh, done the absolute minimum uh, to say it's supporting Ukraine without really providing the robust support that the 13th largest uh, um, economy in the world would be capable of providing. Um, we have, as a nation, accepted that war in Europe has an impact directly and impactly on our own nation. Uh, we seem to have lost that understanding uh, over the last couple of generations and we need to get it back. And so, quickly switching to you know, Australia's national interests... Um, you know, we've made the case, I think, and I agree with you, I've shared your view of me making that argument myself about um, the need uh, for Australia to be heavily staked in the four, you know, the, the, the absolute uh, fight for democracy in Ukraine. But, you know, you had, before the war started, um, Xi Jinping, Vladimir Putin have signed this uh, No Limits Partnership, which essentially put the two biggest autocracies together. Uh, now, we, they didn't define what those no limits were, but uh, shortly thereafter, Putin invades Russia. How do you see the Chinese Communist Party under Xi? Now, things have changed considerably uh, for Xi since that time. The war went very badly for Putin, but obviously COVID-0, et cetera, is impacting on their economy and keeping him internally focused. But what lessons is a country like China and the Chinese Communist Party learning from this invasion? And what do you think that means for Australia's defence orientation, foreign policy thinking? 
Yeah, I mean, I think the Chinese uh, have watched and will continue to watch this war very closely. Um, you know, they they did so. Um, you know, in the wake of the 1991 Gulf War and the 2003 Gulf War, indeed, 1991 Gulf War uh, was a profound um, had a profound impact on the Chinese military, and the PLA have been transforming ever since. They'll be doing the same with this war, but they'll be looking at the political, the diplomatic, the military aspects. They'll be looking at how uh, Ukraine supporters have responded. They'll be looking how. Uh, how America has made strategic decisions related to the war. They're looking at industrial capacity. They're looking at technological developments. They're looking at, you know, how has Ukraine's government performed and how might China stop a Taiwanese government generating international sympathy and assistance like Zelensky has done. So, you know, they'll be looking at this from many, many different directions across many different dimensions, not just uh, the military side of things. Uh, there are a lot of dimensions to this. Now, Mick, I, uh, I can't let you get away. Uh, we've spoken about some really serious issues here and heavy topics, but that's typical of this show. But I can't let you get away without our typical lame, clunky segue to our lame barbecue question. So I'm interested in uh, Mick Ryan's barbecue, three foreigners alive or dead, who are they and why? Yeah, um, I think the first obviously would be President Zelensky. Um, Good choice. The second uh, would probably be the Prime Minister of Estonia. I think she's been very mm. uh, strategic and forward-leaning and a great communicator and a, and a good leader of a small nation. Um, so uh, Kaja Kallis would probably be uh, my my second one. And, um, you know, I think a, a third would, one uh, would probably be... Uh, Ming Chung, who's an American-Chinese strategist who writes on uh, forging uh, China's military might. And I think that would be a very, very interesting combination of both European and Asian uh, studies and, and traditions in war. Well, mate, the only thing I would ask is that you record that conversation. It'd be fascinating to have all those people there. I'd uh, be very jealous about that one. But, uh, mate, look, it's a, it's a great set of guests. So uh, thank you so much for being on our show, and uh, we'll talk soon. Yeah, no worries. It's uh, my pleasure to talk to you, Michelle. G'day, Diplomates fans. Thanks for listening. Thanks so much to Mick Ryan for coming on the show. Uh, I hope you got as much out of it as I did. It's a really brilliant conversation, and Mick was super generous with his time, uh, given he's such a busy man. Now, as always, I'm going to answer one question. Uh, once again, apologies to anybody who sent them through to me via Twitter or email, etc., uh, I can only get to one, otherwise we'd be here all day. And I know that's not why you're here to listen. So, um, questions from Angela. Angela asks, uh, how worried should we be by what we've seen in Brazil? Uh, is this a repeat of what we saw in the United States with the January 6th insurrection? So, I presume uh, Angela is referring to uh, the anti-democracy riots, if you want to call them those, that we saw uh, in Brazil a little over a week ago. Uh Essentially, thousands of uh, supporters of the previous president um, stormed uh, the presidential palace, um, the uh, yeah, the parliament, and also uh, the Supreme Court of Brazil. So it was really shocking scenes, and and frankly, um, all too similar to what we saw uh, in Washington 
basically two years ago now um, in the January 6th insurrection. Uh, it got some coverage. Unfortunately, it hasn't got as much coverage uh, as one would expect. Now, the current president, incumbent president or president-elect who was sworn in on the 1st of January, Lula, um, now he's called this an act of terrorism. And you know, the, the, the scary thing about it is that the previous president, Bolsonaro, many people compared him to Trump. Now, in the lead-up to the Brazilian election, um, Bolsonaro was saying uh, that it was likely that the election would be stolen, that electronic voting systems couldn't be trusted. So if that sounds familiar, it is. And uh, a little unsurprisingly, that as soon as um, Bolsonaro lost the election, didn't even stick around for the uh, inauguration of the next president, much like Donald Trump, and then he went to Florida uh, to hang out, one would think, with Donald Trump. Now, the rumours at the time were that he was going to be invited to Trump's um, uh, New Year's Eve party at uh, Mar-a-Lago. Now, apparently he didn't go, but nevertheless, we do know that Bolsonaro's son met with Trump's team, uh, people like Steve Bannon. I think Trump's one of Trump's kids has met with him. Um, I'm pretty sure that's right. So, Basically, the playbook is very similar. And the kind of scary thing, uh, what you saw with these protests, was that thousands of people first of all camped at the front of the military, um, the Brazilian military barracks, demanding essentially that the military intervene, uh, hoping that they would effectively stage a coup. Um, Now, anyone who knows their history of South American politics, unfortunately, coups did happen quite a bit in the 20th century. Thankfully, on this occasion, the military ignored those protests, but these protests were allowed to build, and eventually they spilled over, and we saw these, uh, essentially the storming of the three, I guess, buildings of government in the Supreme Court, the parliamentary uh, building and the presidential palace. But the kind of wacky thing here, if you want to call it that, or the scary thing, is the thing that the uh, protesters were carrying were signs saying, show us the source code, um, show us uh, the review. So there's these conspiracy theories going around, essentially saying that the voting machines are hacked, and so these source code demands are about, you know, give us the you know, the ability or to see who was hacking into the system. So shows you the power of these um, misinformation bubbles and the way that bad leaders can fuel the fire of these things. Now Bolsonaro tried to distance himself from the whole thing, but clearly when you are the incumbent president and you're saying the election is likely to be stolen, you then lose narrowly and then you go on saying, well, yeah, we lost and you leave the country um, refusing to acknowledge the win of the new president. Um, it's deeply troubling. So in answer to your question, how worried should we be? Very. Um, you know, this problem, you know, even when uh, wannabe authoritarians like Bolsonaro or Trump are defeated, uh, they go on to cause problems because they query the you know, the validity of the election and the system itself. And that's very toxic and cancerous um, because, you know, if people don't believe in the system that it's valid, then it, it's all cancerous to democracy in a way that's almost very difficult to overcome. So um, as much as 2022 was a good year, and I include Lula's election as part of that, um, you know, it, it is a concern and we've got to find a way through this. I don't know what the answer is, but the fever does not appear to be breaking. Anyway, long answer. Good question. See you next time. Bye for now. You were just listening to Diplomates, a geopolitical chinwag. 
For more episodes, visit www.diplomates.show or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or through any of your favorite podcast channels. This podcast was brought to you by Minimum Productions, producer Jim Mintz.